0: turn to Esther, chapter 8. After a week on the Reformation, we're back to Esther. On that day, King Arasherus Gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, And if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadethna, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time, in the third month, which is the month of uh, Sivan, on the twenty third day, and an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces. Uh, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar a copy of which was written, uh, what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures uh, which you have given us by the Spirit to make us wise for salvation through faith in the Son. Make it profitable for us. Teach us. Rebuke us. Correct us and train us in righteousness. Make us mature, equipped for good works as we study the scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Election day is almost here. Hooray. (laughs) We have stuff in the closet for the election process as this is a polling place. So I won't tell you where it is just in case you're a wicked person. Um, But the person of faith Um, This is a really interesting election, and that the person of faith really has a hard time knowing what to do. Do you vote for the person? Do you vote for the platform? Do you vote as a protest? Do you abstain? I'm not here to tell you which of those things to do. That's not my job, so don't worry. If you go, oh, Steve's getting all political, not necessarily. But it's easy for us to, to look at only that which we see and to begin to believe that God does not have a plan and a solution to the mess that we find ourselves in. I think he does have a solution. I know he has a plan, even if we can't see it. At this particular point in time, I believe this because of what I see in the scriptures, not just out of wishful thinking. We're in the midst here in um, in Esther of seeing God's unfolding plan during the time of Esther and Mordecai. Uh, we're seeing that it, this. Uh, crisis is moving towards a conclusion, but it is not sufficient that Haman is dead. There are still problems that need to be addressed, and God is going to continue to address them to uh, produce what I have called his final solution, which is very different from Hitler's final solution. So, what is God's solution to this mess the big idea of this sermon is that Christ's work, Christ works through individuals for the good of his people. That's what we're going to develop this morning as we look uh, more in depth here at Esther 8. And I want the, the first thing for us to uh, say is, is, is that sometimes God puts godly people in positions of power, okay, that there are times in history when he does put godly people in positions of power. But before we get there, we have to recognize the reality of what has just taken place in this story. That Haman, who was the second most powerful man in the world, because he was essentially the prime minister of Persia, and he had the signet ring, and one day went from the glories of power all the way to being a dead traitor quite the turnaround in the course of 24 hours. We see as well, we didn't really mention this at the end of chapter 7, but in his death, the wrath of Xerxes was abated. And so that means a few things, and what's interesting is the first few verses, a lot happens, boom, 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 it's, it's succinct, it's to the point, point. and then later in the chapter it's like, well, they get to the point as it seems to be very detailed. Okay, We're not going to get into all the details this morning, I think. Okay, So the first thing that we note in the very beginning is that because he was a traitor, the house of Haman, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, the house of Haman is given over to the king. It's similar to what happens in our day and age. Uh, If you are running a drug business, an illicit drug business out of your house and the DEA comes along and arrests you, they confiscate the things that you purchased with the drug money, which means they can take your house, they can take your car, they can take all that stuff. All that reverts to the, to the state, which they then sell off. They don't live in it. But in this case, it reverts to the king. It's good to be the king. And he, as a uh, a gesture of goodwill and favor towards Esther gives the house of Haman to her, and now let 's stop for a second. it 's not just the house it 's everything he owned. it 's everything that was a part of him, and so it 's his businesses it 's his land, it's his financial wealth, his servants his family. And so Esther now has custody of the wife and ten sons, as we'll discover next week, uh, the ten sons of Haman. She's responsible for them. But this is a sign of his favor. But since uh, Esther is otherwise Preoccupied in the harem and doesn't leave the house, uh, she gives custody over this to Mordecai. She sets Mordecai over the house of Haman. Again, in that very, this very concise, succinct uh, statement in the beginning of this chapter, we see as well that, that Esther has communicated to Xerxes who Mordecai is to her. He didn't know that this was her guardian or her adoptive father, Uh, that he was her uncle, that he was her advisor and counselor. Xerxes knew none of this because it had all been hidden from him. And so now Esther, having favor with him, basically comes clean. And Xerxes' response is not anger, but his response is to elevate Mordecai. He gives him the position of, that Haman had previously occupied. The promotion that should have been his years ago because he had uncovered the plot to kill the king is now actually Mordecai's, and so he is given the signet ring and everything else that goes with it. And so we see again this dramatic reversal, not only in the the, the casting down of Haman, the man who was uh, supposed to be at the top, the man who was going to kill Mordecai, has been brought to death and killed upon the instrument that he designed to kill Mordecai, but that Mordecai, the one who was supposed to be executed, is now exalted and receives all the glory and all the power and everything else that Haman had. This incredible, great reversal. And so, for those of us who live on this side of the cross, we cannot help but think of Mordecai as showing us a glimpse into the future that is Jesus. Jesus, who was executed, not just was going to be executed, but actually literally was executed, but then was raised from the dead on the third day, has been exalted over all things, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so there's, there are the aspects of that that already are, he already has been raised, he already has been exalted, and we're waiting for that day when every knee will bow, and that day is going to come. But we see a glimpse of the reversal and exaltation of Jesus and the reversal and exaltation of Mordecai. It's just Jesus' is far greater. It's not temporary. It's not just that he's the prime minister of the greatest kingdom on earth for a short period of time, but that he is the ruler over all of creation for the rest of time and then Beyond time into all eternity, and so we see that Jesus, from this position, as revealed in Philippians 2, he rules over all of creation. He is the one who raises up and casts down kings and rulers and presidents and prime ministers and everyone else. And so while we have the power of the vote. And then we have that thing called the Electoral College that most people don't understand very well. But trust me, we importante. Okay? Despite all of that, ultimately it is the will of Christ that is revealed through these things that he is the one who has decided who will be President of the United States and for how long they might be President of the United States brothers and sisters, he cares far more about these elections than you do, although he may care about them for very different reasons than you do. He puts these people in power according to his purpose. Let's think of this. Let's go beyond Esther for a moment. Let's take a little walk through history for a moment. It was Constantine who, as a young man, grew up in the, going through the ranks of the military during the reigns of people like Diocletian, who witnessed the persecutions against the church by Caesar Diocletian. And so what ends up happening when, uh, when Constantine becomes emperor himself, he's not a godly man, but the first one of the things that he does is he now pronounces a time of toleration for the church. While they're still not an official religion of, of Rome, they are permitted to exist and the persecution ends. It was later when he is in a battle during the many civil wars that took place during his reign as Caesar, when he's at the Milvian Bridge, when he apparently had this vision and it was prophesied to him, by this sign, conquer." which is very important because his forces were outnumbered two to one at that battle. And he did win, and he ended up becoming a Christian, and he ended up not just saying that Christianity was to be tolerated, but now Christianity was a legitimate religion, and his religion. Now, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Not everything Constantine did was a good thing, okay? But that one, I think could qualify as all right. All right? We see William Wilberforce, who similarly, uh, on a, lurk, a, a lark we talked about a few weeks ago, you know, became a member of parliament because he couldn't think of anything to do with his life and just decided to spend his money and do that. Well, then becomes a Christian and then decides that he should work to remove slavery from the British Empire. And so first he ends the slave trade and then labors again for the end of slavery. So the first one means there's no more slaves and then now there's no slaves. Lincoln. Also made president and through whom the end of slavery in this country took place. We can debate the rise of federal powers as a result of that, but the end of slavery was a very, very, very good thing. And so we see that God works through these people, and, and some of them were godly and some of them we're not sure about, but God works through these people in order to accomplish His purposes for the good of His people. He works what's needed, whether it be blessing or curse, not necessarily what we might want. And he puts Mordecai where he wants him to be to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And so as we look at the actions of Mordecai, it's not Mordecai we praise, but the one who put him there that we praise. And so at times God answers the prayers of his people by putting godly people in power. Secondly, let us consider that Christ works in us to intercede for the good of God's people. I'll repeat that. Christ works in us to intercede for the good of God's people. The prayers haven't ended. It's prayers that started this whole thing, and the prayers continue, we shall see. Esther has a problem still. While she and Mordecai might be safe... Because they have the king's favor, and I'm not sure there's many who'd want to make that particular king angry by killing his prime minister and his favorite wife, right? Okay. However, the edict of Haman, the hater of the Jews, the enemy of the Jews, the, uh, the wicked traitor against Haman, uh, sorry, against Xerxes, and uh, the one who is an Amalekite, the, the, the descendant of Agag. His edict stands, and it can't be removed. By the law of the, Pe- the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be revoked. It cannot be withdrawn. There's no, oops, sorry, let's forget about that. There's no repealing it like Obamacare, if that ever gets repealed. Okay. There's no change of it. But she wants something to be done. And so she appears before the king, and this time, instead of being in her royal robes uh, with a sort of, you know, the whole plan to have the feast and basically trap Haman, this time she appears humiliating herself. She falls at his feet, it says. She wept. She pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman. This is not a gentle discussion. This is a desperate woman who's laying it all out there. She's not worried about her makeup. She's not worried about her dress getting torn. She's worried about her people. And so she's making what we might think of as a a very big mess of herself in this process, but it is for a reason. She, perhaps, understands Philippians 2 before we understood Philippians 2 when it was given to us, actually. She's acting like this, is what I'm saying. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you know what it looks like to put others' interests In play, you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus who did not consider his glory, Jesus who became as a slave, who was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, in order that he might redeem his people. And so she is not concerned about solely herself, she's also concerned about her people the people whom God loves. And so she intercedes out of her desperation. She intercedes out of her love. She intercedes out of her care. She intercedes out of her compassion for others, which points us again to Jesus who does these very same things forever because He has been raised forever to save us to the uttermost. When she appeals to the king, she does not appeal to his, well, rather, she does appeal to her interests. She does not appeal on the basis of justice. She does not appeal on the basis of fairness. But she wants, knowing this king (laughs) and what will work with this king, she exercises wisdom and talks about if it please the king, if I find favor or grace in your sight, if it seems right to the king. And so she's kind of, knowing as an egocentric man, she has to appeal to his egocentrism. Otherwise, the appeal will fall on deaf ears. But she does seek its withdrawal. But there's a shift. She shifts from him but then to herself, because remember, she is the favored spouse of Xerxes. And two times she says, how can I bear to see? The first time, how can I see the calamity of my people? The second time, how can I see or bear to see the destruction of my kindred It will devastate me, O king. And you know you don't want that. She identifies strongly with the rest of Israel and pleads for their lives to the king. This is, in a sense, an expression of her union with her people. It's also, I believe, an expression of God's union with his people. In Isaiah 63, verse 6, sorry, verse 9, my eyes are old. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And so this is referring specifically to the wilderness uh, journeys. But their affliction was God's affliction. Because he was their father, because he was their husband, all of the different ways that we understand the relationship between God and Israel, because he was those things... Their affliction was his affliction. My daughter lost a hamster yesterday. Her affliction was my affliction. All of you parents know that. When your children suffer, you suffer. When God's children suffer, He suffers. We see this as well on the road to Damascus when Paul has these letters because he's persecuting the church when he was still going by the name of Saul. And in Acts 9, we see the record of how he, there's this loud boom and the, sky, the heavens sort of open and everyone else doesn't hear the words of Jesus, but Saul does. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? My people? No. Why do you persecute me? Because the afflictions of my people are my afflictions. The persecution of my church, Saul, is my persecution. You don't just persecute them. You persecute me and Saul. Who are you? And he's humbled to realize it's Jesus. Jesus. The one whom he thought nothing of is actually the one who has been raised and exalted and sits at the right hand of God the Father to rule over all things forever and ever. Amen. But this is because of our union. Due to our union with Christ, our afflictions are indeed his afflictions. And that prompts. Him to intercede on our behalf, as we see in Hebrews 7.25. But not just Him. You see, yes, Esther points us to Jesus, the great high priest who intercedes for us, but one of the things that happens is Jesus then, because of His saving work for us, now begins to work in us in applying that salvation, and we have a priestly task That is to intercede for others. And so whether it's our affliction or because of our union with the rest of the church, their affliction is now our affliction, we intercede for them. And so when we pray for the persecuted church, it is precisely because we're united to them and we should have a sense of their affliction even though we don't experience their affliction. And it should move us to pray. But I have good news for you. What really moves you to pray is the spirit of adoption, which causes you to cry out, Abba, Father. And while it's not for your affliction, it's for your brothers and sisters, and the same spirit moves you to cry out for their affliction. Help them, Father. Help them. And so it is the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit dwelling in you that results in intercession for brothers and sisters in Christ. Praise God for that. And so that's how these things we find in these texts we find in scripture end up getting fulfilled for instance jeremiah 29 but seek the welfare of the city where i have sent you into exile and pray to the lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare the spirit of god i believe moves his people to pray not just for his people but to pray for the place where they live for the welfare of Pima County, for the welfare of Tucson, for the welfare of Arizona, for the welfare of America, for the welfare of North America, for the welfare of the Western Hemisphere or the Northern Hemisphere, whichever hemisphere you want to pray for. Don't quench the work of the Spirit who moves you to pray For God's people and for the place where you have been planted by God. Paul brings this up again, so to speak, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all then, I urge that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so part of our intercessory work as God's people is to continue to pray that we would be able to lead those peaceful, godly lives to live with dignity and be free to do our work which is not just our vocation that brings money, but also our vocation as Christians to love people, to teach the truth to people. And so He works in us by that spirit of adoption so that we will pray for kings and rulers to, to these ends. That's no small thing, brothers and sisters. Let us... Be sensitive to the work of the Spirit in this, particularly as this election draws nigh. Because trust me, things like Prop 205, they matter to you. Because they affect the people you work with. Because they affect the people you're going to drive in the street with. It's already bad enough in Tucson. I mean, even last night we passed what I think was a fatal accident on Tangerine. We don't need more of that. We need to pray. And so the the same Christ who worked for us for our salvation continues to work in us and through us for the intercession of those who are in affliction. Thirdly, let us see that Christ grants wisdom to rule for the good of God's people. You see, it's popular today to say you can't legislate morality. Well, Haman legislated his morality in the pluralistic nation of Persia. His morality was, it is good to kill the Jews. His morality comes not from God. His morality came from the serpent who has been lying and killing from the beginning. You see, the king's hands are tied. He can't revoke it. But in a sense, he authorizes Esther and Mordecai to issue an edict if they can come up with one. <laughs> he says, You know, you can write it up and everything, but keep in mind, I can't withdraw the one that has already been made. So you just can't issue an edict that says null and void. <laughs> you have to be creative. What we see is that human laws often facilitate systemic evil, like in the case of Haman's edict, genocide. That's government-authorized genocide. That's systemic evil. We see that kind of thing in the old Jim Crow laws uh, of the South. And sometimes human laws in secular states are contradictory or, at the very best, really confusing. For instance, the USDA has um, excess food giveaway programs. And if you have a charity, you can receive those excess goods. But the state won't allow you, or the USDA has set up regulations such that if you have a soup kitchen and you serve food there like once or twice a week or every day, you can't pray with the people. No blessing of the meal because you're forcing religion on people. Now, if, if one of the people comes up and asks you to pray, you can do that. But the USDA does not want you Exercising your faith in the way that you think you should exercise your faith. We see as well, some cities in South Florida, for instance, have said that you as a private citizen cannot just feed a homeless person. Can't do it. There are people who have been arrested for providing food to the homeless. It's only the charities that are permitted to do it. Doesn't make much sense, but nonetheless, there it is. Another example is the new guidelines that the current administration wants to enact for adoption internationally. That will make it even harder, fighting for the children fighting against the children. And so sometimes governments are contradictory between what they say and what they do and even the different things they say to do. And that is the mess into which Mordecai must speak some wisdom. A very similar kind of thing. Mordecai is the prime minister of a pluralistic empire. Mordecai's job is and his understood goals are not to make Persia Jewish. He's not to make it a Jewish state, and he doesn't try to make it a Jewish state. But what he does do is try to enact justice so that the Jewish people are not a persecuted people but are on the same playing field as everybody else. And so the same God who, by his wisdom, made all things, gave wisdom to Mordecai. The one who put Mordecai in this position gives him the the wisdom to rule justly, and that same one who places you where you are can give you wisdom if you're a teacher in a public school. If you are, you're, you're a U.S. Marshal, if you work for Raytheon and you have people underneath you, he can grant you wisdom so that you exercise whatever authority you have with justice and compassion. You're not alone in how you exercise your office. And so Mordecai is able to take care of the Gordian knot, the knot that supposedly cannot be untied. He cuts through it with this edict. This edict is nearly identical to Haman's edict, but instead of it being um, offensive, okay, Haman's edict called on people to, you know, basically hunt down the Jews and kill them. His is defensive. Says you can gather together so that you're not alone. You're allowed to assemble so that you can present a unified force against the people who want to harm you. But he then quotes, essentially, from Haman's edict, so that you are able to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the people who come against you. And so, in a sense, he turns Haman's edict upside down and on its head But just like Haman's edict, he mentions the women and children. And that causes many people to stumble. But what we have here is an instance of holy war. And we saw that from our reading in uh, 1 Samuel 15. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, but... We talked about it in Sunday School last week, if you want to go back, that idea of the intrusion ethic, the, where the judgment of God intrudes upon the present from the future. And there's something to do as well with the unpaid debt with Amalek. That's going to be paid next week. But the point here, I think, in Haman's edict, uh, sorry, Mordecai's edict, is the parallel with Haman's edict. That they need to be as ruthless as their enemies. But they're not seeking out people, they're responding in self defense. Hope that makes sense. Anyway, when Haman's edict was revealed, there was surprise, confusion in Susa, and amongst the Jews, there was sack, sackcloth, ashes, and mourning, followed shortly thereafter by fasting. But we see here is a great turnaround, because when Mordecai's edict is revealed in Susa, he's wearing not sackcloth, he's wearing royal robes. There's not mourning, there's joy. There's not fasting, there's feasting. That even though it hasn't happened yet, even though there's still nine months to go, there is joyful celebration because they know they have a chance. That God has begun, from their perspective, to answer all of the prayers that they had offered, and good things are happening now. And this amazing reversal that had begun the the previous day continues. And it is Christ Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, who is our wisdom, His wisdom enacted, resulted in rejoicing. We have this one final thing here. Many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And that phrase, "fear of the Jews had fallen on them," is, a, is one we find a lot actually in Scripture. For instance, uh, First Chronicles 14, Second Chronicles 17, second Chronicles 20. OK. And so some were afraid of the Jews, and because they were afraid, they aligned themselves with the Jews. This can mean two things. This, this could be on the, on the positive side, Genesis 12 fulfilled. Remember, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This could be people coming into Judaism to be blessed by God because of the promise given to Abraham. Some people, that might be true. But for others, it may just be save your skin time. One of the things we saw during the reign and rule of Constantine was because now he was a Christian and it was the, the, the religion of the state, many people made professions of faith so that they could grow higher up in the government, sort of like the good um, person who shows up to church for business contacts. That's what they were doing. And so these people were very mi- very likely to be filled with those who did it not because they believed it but because they didn't want to be hurt by it oh well we see here that god still works in a mysterious way his wonders to perform for his people God still answers prayers for the welfare of the place where we live. He still answers prayers so that we might live godly and peaceful lives. Here we see God working a great deliverance for his people. But first, let's keep in mind, before this there were 70 years of exile. Didn't feel so great, that part of it. So God does have a plan for his people who live, not just... Vague places, but here, Tucson, Pima, Arizona, the U.S. Whatever may happen on Tuesday, we need to keep that in mind. That our world may change, but our world isn't over. That is because we live under the rule of the crucified, resurrected, and exalted one, Jesus Himself. And all things are under His control regardless of who wins the vote and what we think of them. Let's pray. Father, we um, can often be very vested in what happens politically. And we can probably feel a lot like Esther. We can be filled with fear of what may happen. But I ask that you would be at work by your spirit so that we would remember that our trust is in you and that you are the one who raises up and puts down kings and presidents and county supervisors and senators, that you are the one who reigns and rules and that our calling is not to uh, curse this, but to walk by faith in the midst of this. So redirect us so that we can live faithful lives regardless of what goes on around us. That we can live expectant lives regardless of what goes on around us that we can live hopeful lives regardless of what goes on around us. Father, you know that that is a challenge for me. I am by nature a pessimist. But I thank you for those moments of um, spiritual sanity when I see and remember the truth. Help us to see it and remember it, to not suffer from spiritual amnesia but to remember our lot is tied up in Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.